Folks, you're so welcome to the vineyard. My name's Andy. I'm part of the team here. If you are a guest or a visitor, we really hope that you feel uh, really at home, at ease among us. We're going to watch a quick video just uh, summarizing some of the tribe tour stuff James was talking about, and then I'm going to jump back up in a second. Go for it, lads. There was a couple of reasons I went away on a tribe tour this year. Um, the first reason was because day to day I work in human trafficking aftercare and I had realised that although I work with people coming out of human trafficking, I had never actually seen it day to day in front of me as always as it would have been to us in Cambodia. So um, the first reason I wanted to go was to witness that. I kind of felt like that would give me a fire and a passion in my belly that would sustain me in my job. And the second reason is more of a personal reason. So these trips don't come easily for me. I have massive fear and anxiety about going away to places like Cambodia. So for me, it was a moment of telling fear that it wasn't going to win. Um, so that was the reason as well. One of the things that was really cool for us to see and hear from Pete Kernahan and Laura was that um, they had seen a massive change in a good way in what had happened in Cambodia. So the first time they had went they had seen so much child sexual exploitation and this time around there had been real progress in that. So for me it was a real reminder that no matter how dark this fight gets, actually you can make progress in it. Um, the second thing was we met with a lady at Chab Dai and she was talking about how human trafficking is a networked crime so it needs a networked response. So it helped me really focus on aftercare and the part that I play in that network. Um, so as I've came home it's really helped me focus on specifically aftercare to make sure that I play my part well um, and I suppose it's also encouraged me to have more conversations with people about the fact that human trafficking happens here. One of my favourite aspects about tribe tours is the people you go away with um, so it was really exciting for me to be able to meet new people, to re-engage with people I already knew on a deeper level um, but one of the really important things that we learnt in Cambodia and we really prioritised in Cambodia was that we could be having a really rough day and seeing really really dark things and you learnt then to rely on the people around you, that they were people that then brought light to you in the evening. Um, and I suppose that's something I've also brought home with me then as I've got back here, that on days when it's really tough, or I see something really rough in work, or whatever it might be, that it's important that I can come back and rely on this community and this family. Isn't that cool? Just me? Turn to the person beside you say it's okay to talk back. It's not a joke. I'm not kidding. Turn to the person beside you say it's okay to talk back. <laughs> Vet thinks that was like the BBC, Pete. Good job. Um, one of the things I love about our community is um, we are people who just relentlessly say yes to what Jesus is doing around us. That's kind of normal for us. And uh, can I really encourage you today to go home, check out Tribe Tours online, uh, and figure out what's going on. I love that, that this kind of thrust of saying yes to Jesus is not just confined to a few weeks in the summer either. You maybe don't know this, but uh, Jenny Geddes was in the video, actually is in Kenya, at the, no, India at the minute, uh, with IGM. Uh, is Jenny back? No? When she get back? Three weeks' time. Uh, Jenny's been uh, in India working with IGM, uh, looking at the whole area of justice. 
um, and how we get involved in that. Uh, Julia Ireland, who's also part of our community, has been in Kenya working with Actions Not Words for the past six weeks or so. She'll be home in, in a couple of weeks' time. I love that we have people around us that are just connecting to issues and Jesus and saying, how can I get involved and, and just jumping in? Uh, before we uh, look at what we want to talk about this morning, though, I want to take a moment Steph, if you're not already embarrassed enough uh, about the, the video, I want us to pray for a moment for, for Steph. So will you stand, and would you, the rest of you stand if you're able with me, just stand up. We're going to pray for, for Steph. Um, it is an incredible thing that she has said yes to in her life, in her day job. Uh, she models what we talk about so beautifully and so courageously of saying yes to seeing the life of Jesus come to every single person and part and uh, we, just, we just love that. So those of you standing around, Steph, just put a, put a hand on her and we're going uh, to pray uh, for a second and then we'll jump into the scriptures this morning. Um, Jesus, thank you that you care for every single person in this community and on the planet. And we want to honor Steph's obedience to your invitation to join in with what you're doing specifically here in Northern Ireland and fighting the injustice of human trafficking. And Holy Spirit, I pray that you would encourage her, that she would deeply sense your presence in her work every single day. And Lord, I pray as things have even begun to open up more over the last couple of weeks, that your favor would continue to increase upon her that you would open doors to people of influence, both individuals and institutions. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. So, we, we've, we're kind of in the middle of a conversation and we're, we're looking at this whole idea of obedience. And... Um, this theme, this word, this, this idea is at the very core of what it means to be a Christian. I don't know uh, how you would answer that question if you could summarize Christianity in like a sentence or a word. I hope you wouldn't think of rules or regulations. I hope you wouldn't think of religious rhythms or routines. But, but what we want to suggest is that the very core of Christianity, of what it means to follow Jesus, is this sentence that we do what he says. That we do what he says. At the core of Christianity is the confession that Jesus is Lord. That Jesus is Lord. There's this old uh, Sunday school expression that says he's either Lord of all or not Lord at all. A little bit cheesy but absolutely true. That at the core of what it means to follow Jesus, the summary of the gospel, the summary of Christianity is this idea that Jesus rules and reigns over everything. And whenever we do baptism here, that's the final thing, the final question we ask before people get baptized. Do you believe that Jesus Christ is king over everything, especially or particularly your life? That Jesus is Lord is this core confession. Lord's a funny uh, word these days. Uh, we mostly interface with it, um, thinking about rather old grey people who sit in a building in London and somehow kind of argue with each other about where society should go. 
But actually, this word Lord means one who has authority or power over another. One who has authority or power over another. And Jesus, this is really important, Jesus doesn't become Lord of your life whenever you pray a prayer. Right? This is really, really important. The, the measurement of is Jesus Lord of your life is not have you one day in the past prayed, Lord, I'd like you to be that. The measurement of whether or not Jesus is actually Lord of our life is the answer to the question, do we do what he says? Do we do what he says? Because if we don't do what he says, then we've somehow kidded ourselves into thinking that a prayer equals lordship. Somebody who has authority or power over us. And that works its way out as he speaks to us through the scriptures, through his spirit. And as we enfold ourselves into this rhythm of obedience, of doing what he says, we can measure Christ's lordship by the measure of our obedience. Now listen, we all make mistakes, myself included. We get it wrong. We get to the end of our days and we think, flip, I wish I could have done that differently or that differently. I wish I hadn't made that decision. But at the core of us, are we trying to do everything we possibly can to live in obedience to him? And last week we talked about this redefinition of success for our lives. That success is not defined by the size, status, or stuff that we have in our lives, but our success is measured by our obedience to Jesus. Here at Lagan Valley Vineyard, that's what we want to define success as. Not that it all work out, not that lots of people know your name, not what balance is in your bank account, but do you do what he says? Do we do what he says. I am discovering and learning that there is no wilder life than one that is open to the wind of God's spirit and the whisper of his voice. There is no wilder adventure available to us than the life that is open to the wind of God's spirit and the whisper of his voice. I want to look at a passage of scripture this morning from the book of 2 Kings. Uh, It's on page 249 in your black Bibles on your seats. Why don't you grab a Bible, turn to page 249. 2 Kings chapter 1. This is a bit of a mad story. Um, We're going to read from verse 1 to 15 so you can follow along if it helps you pay attention. 2 Kings chapter 1 verse 1 says this, After Ahab's death, Moab rebelled against Israel. Now Isaiah had fallen through the lattice of his upper room in Samaria and injured himself. So he sent messengers saying to them, Go and consult Baal-zebub, the god of Ekron, to see if I will recover from this injury. But the angel of the Lord said to Elijah the Tishbite, Go up and meet the messengers of the king of Samaria and ask them, Is it because there is no God in Israel that you're going off to consult Beelzebub, the God of Ekron? Therefore, this is what the Lord says. You will not leave the bed you're lying on. You will certainly die. So Elijah went. When the messengers returned to the king, he asked them, Why have you come back? A man came to us, they replied, and he said to us, Go back to the king who sent you and tell him, This is what the Lord says. 
Is it because there is no God in Israel that you are sending messengers to consult Beelzebub, the God of Ekron? Therefore you will not leave the bed you are lying on, you will certainly die. The king asked them, what kind of man was it who came to meet you and told you this? They replied, he had a garment of hair and had a leather belt around his waist. The king said, that was Elijah the Tishbite. Then he sent Elijah, a captain with his company of 50 men. The captain went up to Elijah, who was sitting on top of a hill, and said to him, man of God, the king says, come down. Elijah answered the captain, if I am a man of God, may fire come down from heaven and consume you and your 50 men. Then the fire fell from heaven and consumed the captain and his men. At this, the king sent to Elijah another captain with his 50 men. The captain said to him, man of God, this is what the king says, come down at once. If I am a man of God, Elijah replied, may fire come down from heaven and consume you and your 50 men. Then the fire of God fell from heaven and consumed him and his 50 men. So the king sent a third captain with his 50 men. This third captain went up and fell on his knees before Elijah. Man of God, he begged, please have respect for my life and the lives of these 50 men. See, fire has fallen from heaven and consumed the first two captains and all of their men, but now have respect for my life. The angel of the Lord said to Elijah, go down with him. Do not be afraid of him. So Elijah got up and went down with him to the king. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, we invite you to come and speak to us. Father, we long for your voice. We welcome you among us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. It's a pretty mad story, eh? Like it's, 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 pretty, it's pretty crazy. This is the, the final um, prophetic word Elijah gives in his life. And he's lived a pretty radical life up until now. For any of you who don't know the history of Elijah, he first kind of comes onto the scenes in 1 Kings 17. Um, he appears out of almost obscurity. We don't hear anything about where he's come from or what he's been doing. God raises him up in a generation of moral and spiritual decay. The fabric of society is crumbling and law and order is disintegrating into chaos. And Elijah begins his kind of public ministry by declaring a drought. He declares that the rains would stop and that the grounds would dry up and uh, they do. Not bad for a first prophetic word. And then he goes and he stays with the widow and her son. And while he's staying with this widow and her son, her son passes away. And he's kind of introduced himself to her as a man of God. And he said lots of things. And then her son dies. And she's kind of annoyed. She's been giving him everything that she has. And she says, is this how God treats my hospitality? That I would offer you hospitality and then my only son would die. And the son is on his deathbed upstairs. And it says that Elijah goes and he lies on top of the son and breathes life basically into him. Commands his body to come alive again. And then the boy is resurrected. It's pretty, it's pretty crazy. And then he ends up on top of a mountain in a confrontation with a bunch of false prophets. So all of the prophets of God have been slaughtered. He's the only one left. And there are all these prophets of Baal and they go up on this mountain and Elijah starts to make fun of them and make fun of this false God that they have. And he basically 
kind of challenges them to this like supernatural prophetic challenge. And he says, why don't you build an altar and slaughter an animal and put it on the altar and call fire from heaven from your God down on this altar and I'll do the same and whoever's God wins, wins. And so the prophets of Baal build this altar, they slaughter a bull, they put it on happening and nothing's happening and the whole time Elijah's kind of off to the side going, Jeepers, your God's powerful, isn't he? Well, if I, if, I, if I didn't know any better, I'd be like lining up to worship your God. Look how effective he is. And then eventually, there's an altar to God, the one true God, Yahweh, and it's crumbled and been kind of destroyed, and Elijah rebuilds it, and he puts wood on top of it, and he slaughters a bull, and he puts it up there, and then he goes and gets all this water and begins to drench the altar in this water, so much that the sacrifice, the wood, the stones, and a trench around it is filled, literally filled with water, and then he calls fire down from heaven, and it falls, and the text says that the animal, the wood, the stones, the water, and the very soil is burnt up as God declares his power and his reality. And then, it's mad, Elijah slaughters all of the false prophets. Like, it's, it's just, it's crazy. And here we find him, in this moment, confronting the authority and power structures of the day with their idolatry, knowing that whenever we worship gods that can't fulfill the promises that they make, it goes bad for us and everyone else. And so Elijah confronts this king and says, you're going to die, pal. You're inquiring of idols if you're going to actually live rather than worshiping the one true God. And then he takes himself off and sits on top of a mountain. It, it kind of has the apparent, like, appearance that he's, like, he's kind of sulking. He's just kind of sitting up there on top of a mountain. I don't know what you do whenever you've confronted a king telling him he's going to die. But anyway, he's, he's sitting up there, and the king sends a captain and 50 men up, and he says, man of God, come down. The king wants to talk to him. And says, man of God, come down. And Elijah turns around and says, if I am a man of God, let fire fall from heaven upon you and burn you all up. And fire falls. I'm imagining it's like lightning maybe or something like that. But anyway, the captain and his 50 men are burned up. And news must get back to the king. He's like, well, what do we do now? I send another captain. Can you imagine being that guy? Like, word has just returned that the previous captain got, and all his men got burned up by this crazy prophet on top of a mountain. And anyway, he goes, second captain, talk about obedience, eh? Second captain marches up the hill with his 50 men. Man of God, come down. If I am indeed a man of God, let fire fall from heaven and burn all of you up. And whack, it happens again. I'm, I can't help but be curious what Elijah's doing in the meantime. What does he think about when this happens? Anyway, news returns to the king. Captain get burned up and all his men as well. Send another one. I'm surprised he had any left. <laughs> if I'm a captain of this king's army, I'm out the door with all of my men. <laughs> Let's go somewhere else. Anyway, he sends a third guy. This is amazing. Verse 13. So the king sent a third captain with his 50 men. This third captain went up and fell on his knees before Elijah. 
Man of God, he begged, please have respect for my life and the lives of these 50 men, your servants. See, fire has fallen from heaven. It's as if Elijah didn't know. Are you aware of what you did to the other guys? See, fire fell from heaven and consumed the first two captains and all of their men. But now have respect for my life. He falls on his knees and begs him, please don't kill me. Please don't kill my men. And I don't know if this ever happens to you, but I read the Bible all the time and read stuff that I feel like shouldn't be there. Like it sounds like a typo. It doesn't make any sense. Verse 15, the angel of the Lord says to Elijah, go down with him. Don't be afraid of him. The angel's talking to the wrong guy, right? Like Elijah's just called fire from heaven on two guys just like this guy. And it fell and they were completely burned up. But Elijah finds himself facing this third captain and he's afraid. How can he possibly be afraid? His entire life has been watching some of the most miraculous, supernatural phenomenon any of us could ever imagine. And he finds himself about to step into a moment of confrontation with a king, and God has just demonstrated that he's with him twice in the most dramatic of fashion, and an angel comes and has to say to him, Elijah, now calm down, don't be frightened. Don't be frightened. Everything I've just said has been leading me to this point. And I'm convinced in reflection of my own life, observing others, reading history and reading the scriptures, that more terrifying than any miracle or seeing supernatural phenomenon is the discovering and unfolding of the will of God for your life. Literally scared the life right into you. Giving yourself fully to the destiny God has written over you is terrifying. Standing beside it, one foot in, one foot out, that, that can be fun. It feels a little bit like, you know, unsatisfying, but it can be fun. But moving into it fully, letting go of everything else is terrifying, utterly terrifying. We talked last week about obedience is success. Second thing you need to understand is obedience is scary. Obedience is scary. It provokes fear in us. When God speaks to us and invites us into things, fear immediately presents itself. Now, those of you who know the scriptures well, I know we'll instantly be thinking of Romans 8 where Paul says that the Spirit of God sets us free so that we don't have to live as slaves to fear. Or 2 Timothy where Paul says to Timothy that he has not received a spirit that makes him a slave to fear but of love and power and a sound mind. And those things are absolutely true. But listen, they declare a freedom from slavery to fear, not a freedom for the absence of fear. The two are very, very different. 
The two are very different. I wonder how many of us live underneath the yoke of fear. We live under its power and its influence, controlled by fears of what others have said or might say, controlled by the fear of what if what I'm trying to do doesn't work, stuck perhaps needing a heavenly guarantee that you won't look silly or your reputation won't be dented if you say yes to what God is inviting you into. There are two ways I think we can engage with fear in our lives. The first is we can allow it to bully us. And um, I think that's perhaps where most of us live. That when fear presents itself, we run over here. And then we get restored and we spend more time with Jesus and listening and trying to exercise this stuff. And then God says something again. We're like, whoa, that's just too scary. I'm out. And we allow it to bully us. And we allow it to rob us from the things that God wants to release into our city and into the world. Or we can see fear as an invitation. We can engage with fear as an invitation to discover and live in the more that God has for us. There's a, a three-word refrain. It's, it's almost like a jazz riff that you hear the entire sweep of the scriptures. Genesis 15, when God makes his covenant with Abraham, he begins with, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Genesis 46, when God tells Jacob to go to Egypt to be reunited with his son Joseph, God starts, don't be afraid. When God speaks to Moses from the burning bush in Exodus 2, it declares Moses is afraid. Three times in Joshua chapter 1, when God's commissioning him to go and lead the people into the promised land, three times God says, Joshua, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. In Judges 6, when Gideon speaks with the angel and is convinced he's about to die, God speaks to him, don't be afraid. And we've just read of this moment in Elijah's life where he's about to go and give this prophetic word. He's about to step in again to the plans and purposes of God in his generation. And the angel comes and says, Elijah, don't be afraid. We see this right up to Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. Facing the cross and everything that's around there. And he prays this prayer, God, if there's any way, Father, if there's any way I can avoid this, take it from me, but not my will be done, yours. Jesus is afraid. Don't you find that kind of comforting? I know I do. Even in this moment, Jesus is fearful. And yet, He's not controlled by fear. He's able to engage his fear. Lord, if there's any way I can get out of this, show me the way. But I don't want to live for what I want. May I embody your desires. Every single one of these people I've just talked about discover something that in their obedience... 
in their moving beyond their fears, they discover something that they cannot discover before they move into it. And it's this, that God is good. That God is good. If Moses doesn't move through his fear, there is no exodus. If Joshua doesn't move through his fear, there is no promised land. If Gideon doesn't move through his fear, there is no deliverance from a nation oppressed and brutalized. And if Jesus himself doesn't move through his fear, there is no overthrowing of the power structures of Satan, sin, and death itself. You see, God's goodness, God's goodness is just an idea until we say yes to what he's asking from us. And so many of us struggle with this idea of God's goodness because we've never experienced it. And in my experience, the experience of it comes on the other side of obedience. Saying yes to God is the ultimate declaration of our trust in him. And when we declare our trust in him, the revelation of his character unfolds in front of us. Obedience is success. Obedience is scary. And in obedience, we get to experience the goodness of God. How many of you in this room can remember that moment just before you surrendered your life to Jesus? Equal parts excited, equal parts terrified. It's the most consistent summary of what people say whenever I ask them after they've surrendered their lives to Jesus. Describe that experience for me. My heart was beating a million miles an hour. I was terrified, but I just knew I had to do this. And then describe to me what the moment after was like I was overwhelmed. I was overwhelmed with a sense of God's love and his goodness. I told you that story last week about ending up on that pub pool team. Not my idea of a normal Tuesday night. Standing outside that pub, waiting to go in, having no idea what was about to happen. I was terrified. Terrified. Palms sweating, knees wobbling, standing against the wall with a door here, praying the best prayer I had, and then just walking into the bar. A few hours later, if you weren't here last week, we don't have time to tell the whole story, but you can catch that up online. But a few hours later... After everything that unfolded, I am walking back up the hill completely astounded at what has just happened. And I'm talking to God, what, what was that? What just, what just happened to me? And I felt like God just whispered to me a really simple thought. I love those men and I wanted to show them. I love those men. I wanted to show them. They're never going to darken the door of a church. They're even less likely to buy a Christian book or whatever. But the God that we worship would speak to a practical teenager on holiday in Devon and say, you need to go to that pub. 
And then orchestrate things in such a way that the very night that you've got the courage to walk in is the first night of their pool league and they're a player short. And for the rest of the year, you get to demonstrate that God is present with those who feel farthest from him. That our behavior, our choices, our mess never disqualifies us from the love and affection of Almighty God. And I was overwhelmed walking home that night at how good he really is. That he would do something like that for them. And then I felt like God whispered to me something else. And it was this. By the way, Andy, I'd do it for you. I'd do it for you. God's goodness can remain in this place of theology or ideology, but whenever we move towards the things that scare the life into us, that we feel like God's whispering to us about, that seems radical and even foolish and a bit mad, it's in those moments of obedience that we discover and experience his goodness. He is good. He is forever good, always good. But his goodness will disappoint us until we experience it. It will always disappoint us when it lives in the realm of an idea. But it will sustain us for our entire life once we've experienced it. And I don't know another way to experience it other than being obedient to what he says. I wish I could give you a shortcut. It costs us everything, but it gives us life itself. I wonder what's God speaking to you about? Where do you interface with fear? Does it bully you? Or does it invite you? I wonder, has the goodness of God been a nice idea in your life, but something you're yet to really experience? You see, the reality is no church gathering can do this for you. No devotional book, no conference, no worship CD. This whole thing comes down to will we do what he says? Will we do what he says? Will we refuse to be intimidated by fear? Will we respond to it as an invitation and live in the experience of God's goodness. I'm constantly astounded, constantly blown away at how good he really is. I want to invite the band to come up, but as they come, I want us to take a moment of uh, quietness. Um, Don't be alarmed if that's interrupted by some kids and babies and things like that. I love that this is family. And family is a little bit messy and a little bit chaotic. And um, if we ever get to, maybe I should perhaps say when, when we get to the place when we have like 
a building big enough for everyone and we don't have to have you know, parents stressing because their toddlers are running around and all that kind of stuff. Uh, I'm going to be a little bit sad if we ever have gatherings that don't have that interruption of the noise of family because it's so, so, so important. And God doesn't need perfectly structured silence to be able to speak with us. His, his spirit doesn't need a nice C-pad on a piano to kind of fall on us all. Is that a good one? I don't know. I made that up. There it is. That, there it is. So, there it is. <laughs> they can't hear me when they put their in-ears in, so um, don't, don't play anything. There we go. <laughs> God doesn't need us to hype ourselves up into a moment of reflection. He is drawn to our hunger, our openness. He can't help himself. So, wherever you are, would you close your eyes? And I'm going to pray one of the most ancient prayers there is. Holy Spirit, come. Holy Spirit, come. Lord, we welcome your voice. Lord, I pray that you would reveal to us in these moments the places in our lives where fear is an invitation. Give us the courage and the strength to move towards it. this week and this month that you would enable us enable us to experience your goodness would you move it from ideology or theology to lived experience
to, we're not going to draw this out loads, but just a sense this morning, if you have a, a problem in your right knee, could you just wave at me? We're not going to um, do anything weird or freaky, but um, any others? Right knees, right knees, three, four, cool. Um, so keep your hands up for a second, look around the room, gather around these guys with issues in the right knee, Simon right here, put your hands, a couple of you put a hand on them, yeah, Johnny, Audrey. Lord, thank you for healing power. And I speak to these knees right now and I command them to be healed. I speak to ligaments and bone issues and command them to be completely restored. Let healing come. I speak to pain and I command it to leave your bodies right now. Be healed. In Jesus' name. Amen. So, um, guys who we're praying for, just do something that you couldn't do before. Test it out. Give it a wiggle or a whatever. Um, try and do something you couldn't do beforehand. And um, just wave at me if you're seeing any change, improvement, or healing. Okay. So if like pain was like really bad and now it's not so bad, or if you'd like a range of movement, just give me a wave if something. Yeah. Can you shout out what's changed? No pain anymore. Completely gone. Isn't that cool? I think <laughs> we're either the most reserved people in the world or we're just so used to God supernaturally interrupting our lives. We're like, okay, someone got completely set free from pain. That's kind of cool, I guess. On we go. That's amazing. Anybody else? Anybody else? Any change, improvement, healing? So we're just going to stay here for just a second. So um, those of you who are praying, let's pray again, okay? Um, so put your hands on the guys again. Lord, thank you so much for what you're doing. Thank you that you're among us, that you love to demonstrate your goodness. And we just speak to knee problems right now and command them to be healed. We speak to pain and command it to go away. I command a release and movement that you would remake tendons and ligaments and bone issues right now. We release and command complete healing in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, guys, just really quickly, and then we're going to have to be uh, done, but um, just check those out again, the rest of you guys. See if anything's happening. <laughs> Johnny, you all right over there? Change, change improvement, healing. Wave at me if anything's changed at all. You have a heat in your knee? Weird, weird heat. We'll take weird heat. That's amazing. Wonderful. Anyone else? Um, so I just want to help you see what's happened there, right? So I'm just modeling exactly what I've talked about. I finished the talk. We're quiet for a minute. I feel like the Lord says right knees can be healed. And I'm terrified. And everything in me wants to say nothing and just move to worship. But as we move towards it, things begin to happen. We're going to worship uh, now for a second and um, I want to, um, all of you who've got physical conditions in your bodies to pay attention to what's going on. Okay, if you've got a pain in your body, pay attention to what's it like now and what it'll be like after worship. If you've got things, movement, issues, bones, joints, whatever, pay attention to what's happening now. We're going to worship and uh, we'll uh, reflect on that in just, in just a minute. So you guys, you guys good? Wonderful. Let's worship. Lord, 
thank you that you're good and that your goodness is beyond our understanding. You're so good. You're so good. And I speak now to the controlling spirit of fear and I break it off your lives. Some of you, um, it's not just a, like I get a little bit scared sometimes. Some of you have like a, a paralysis when it comes to fear. Going out in the street, being at home on your own, fear bullies you. And this morning we get the privilege of breaking that off your life. And so if, if that's you, can I just encourage you, I'm not going to ask you to put your hand up. Just place your hand discreetly, just pr- place it on your heart. Place it on your heart. I speak to fear now and I command it to go. Be gone. Be gone. And let freedom and joy and life come. Let freedom and joy and life come. I speak to the things that it has robbed you from relationships, from job opportunities, from health in your families. And I release those to return to you now in abundance. God, would you come and show off among us. Show off your goodness in our lives, in our families, in this city. Show off. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.